Your notes and information right here, right now. Welcome to Just Twerts, your weekly helper for anything twerts related. I'm your host, Brent Lian. Hello guys, this is Brent, and today I'm sitting here with Alan and Ahini. We're discussing the topic of private nuisance. If you guys have any comments on our previous episodes, make sure to post them on Facebook or anywhere else. You can post them in iTunes, and we'll be looking over the constants uh, on a regular basis, and we'll be rolling out possible updates on the contents of the podcast. But with all that aside, let's just get into our topic today. Private nuisance. Can you guys explain what's private nuisance to me? Okay, so private nuisance basically happens when someone indirectly interferes with your use and enjoyment of land to which you have exclusive possession. Alan? Yeah. So what constitutes private nuisance can arise in a whole range of circumstances and forms which are non-exhaustive. Those include noise, vibrations, pollutants, water, fire, even sex workers emanating from adjoining premises. That, that sounds interesting. Yes, it does, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, liability is strict if the nu- nuisance arises out of uh, what is called misfeasance. Mm. One phrase that keeps popping up when we learn about private nuisance is the title to sue. And this is one of the major issues that I encountered when I, I think we, when we all were doing mooting. So what's title to sue and when can you prove somebody has a title to sue? So to determine who has title to sue in a specific situation, the relevant authority is hunting and canary wall. Basically in that decision the appellant plaintiffs claim damages in respect of interference with the television reception of their homes as a result of a building that had begun to obstruct that Mm. reception. Essentially this case established the principle that uh, more is required than the mere presence of a neighbouring building to give rise to an actionable private nuisance. In order for you to even get started on this cause of action you must first indicate that you have title to sue and title to sue lies in actual and exclusive possession of the land affected and that means mere licensees of land don't have title you you actually need to be the exclusive possessor of the land so that raises interesting questions around whether for example tenants and subtenants can sue in private nuisance but as a general principle you need to have exclusive and actual possession yeah i think it's worth mentioning that exclusive possession is, is an entirely a question of fact so when you actually own a room all you have to do to establish exclusive possession is to make sure that you prove it to the judge that you're actually in control of the room, that you're in control of everything, the television, the doors, and it's not a question of law, it's a question of fact. So, can we talk about the case that you mentioned earlier, the prostitutes emanating from the perimeter? So, the case was Thompson, Schwab, and Kostaki. So, basically, they were neighbors living in a terrace, and Kostaki um, was operating a brothel in his apartment, and there were, like, women constantly coming to and fro. This was considered a private nuisance because it was offensive conduct, so offensive conduct, broadly speaking. Yeah, because you don't really see that often. Usually, people complain about noise and Mm. gas and even sometimes horses, but you don't really see the cases in which people complain about the prostitutes going in and out from the premise. So I think this case, it was interesting because it specifies that the conduct has to be offensive. Yeah. Yeah, like in terms of saying, because we know that private nuisance is unreasonable and unlawful interference with enjoyment of land and property. What other cases sort of like qualifies this principle? Well, uh, another important case is Victoria Park Racing and Recreation Grounds Company in Taylor. Mm. Um, But before I jump into that, there's an important point, I think, which is pertinent for Kostaki, which is that the general test in determining whether something interferes with 
a plaintiff's convenient and comfortable enjoyment of their land is whether the activities which are being done and alleged to be nuisances uh, constitute interference in the context of the usage and the utility of that activity within civil society and whether that's appropriate and accustomed to the character of the neighbourhood and that's something that uh, will be expanded upon in later cases. As for Victoria Park Racing, in this case, basically, the plaintiff owned a race course with competitions for horse racing. The defendant owned land adjacent to that race course, which was built on an elevated platform and enabled him to see what took place on the race course. For example, reading information on notice boards, seeing the participants at the race scratching for uh, the winners of the race, betting, gambling, so on. The defendant, standing on this platform and through a telephone, was able to comment and describe the race and announce the names of the winning horse, very akin to sort of a radio, I suppose. And as a result of that, the plaintiff, the owner of the race course, made a claim in action for nuisance. The legal principle rising out of Victoria Park racing is really that the action in nuisance is supposed to protect an occupier from unreasonable interference with certain legally recognised aspects or incidents of their use and enjoyment of the land. And so nuisance provides only limited protection to an occupier from being overlooked by others in the sense of um, natural <laughs> spatial advantage, in the sense that if you're on a hill and you're able to look over your neighbor's fence into their land, this doesn't necessarily automatically constitute private nuisance. Yeah. Lahini, do you have anything to add? Um, yep. Yeah. So um, just, I think it was Rossidi and Hughes. Basically, they were, again, neighbors. And the defendant in this case had installed floodlights and surveillance cameras so that whenever his neighbour went into his garden, it'd be like lights came on and they were like filming party. him. <laughs> 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 um, and then, um, yeah, so in this case, it was considered... <laughs> The um, illumination and surveillance was considered to be a nuisance. Yeah, so this is just a specific example in which illumination and surveillance was held to be a nuisance, despite what happened in Victoria Park Racing. As for more, because some of you might realise some of the cases relate to the topic of invasion upon privacy, please tune in to our next episode, which is going to be about invasion upon privacy, and we have some amazing co-curators on the episode. But as of right now, can we talk about the case of St. Helens Smelting Co. and Tipping? Yep, so in that decision... Essentially, the pertinent question is what constitutes unreasonable substantial interference and how is that to be examined by a court in the context of locality, in the context of the utility of the nuisance, and whether there's any sort of effect on the success of a claim if you can prove material damage rather than personal discomfort and inconvenience. In St. Helens Smelting Co. and Tipping, the plaintiff owned property where there was manufacturing works nearby. At the time of the purchase, the plaintiff was aware of the presence at about a mile and a half away appellants copper smelting works produced vapors this case came to trial when the noxious vapors from st helen smelting caused damage to the trees and the crops of tipping's property so the legal issue arising out of this is really did the damage to the plaintiff's trees constitute private nuisance i think what we can take from this decision is whether an interference with comfort and quiet enjoyment amounts to actionable nuisance depends on locality and it's to be looked at in the context of that sort of spatial measure. An interference which causes material damage, as it was in this case, will be an actionable nuisance. And Lord Chancellor, Lord Westbury, in the case, held essentially that material damage and material injury increases the chance of success for a private nuisance claim. And where there isn't that material injury, there is a high threshold to be proven. Right. I'm just wondering, when we mentioned locality, what's a brief description of what locality is? My 
understanding of locality is that it's it's really a multifactorial gateway. So really, it's not just a sort of spatial measure. It's not distance. It's expectations, I think, that you can yeah. have of a place. Yeah. The way that I think about it is just you ought to know better about the place where you live, mm. right? Well, so um, just another case where you kind of shows the importance of locality is Monroe and Southern Dairies. Mm. In this case, you had a guy living in a town which was pretty urbanized. He was like making milk for his neighbors, basically, and he had all these horses and cows and whatnot in his backyard, and they were causing like noise and manure and basically disturbing the neighbors because this town was no longer as rural as it used to be. It was held that this was now a private nuisance because it wasn't it was considered as an interference that was substantial according to the ordinary standards of comfort to be expected in the locality was there also a point about if a manufacturer is storing the stock of stuff which are really delicate then the manufacturer cannot complain about the manufacturing process i think there was a case in which the paper box got ruined by the high temperature right yeah that's the decision of robinson and kilvert really considers a question of what happens when you have a sensitive plaintiff and in, in robinson basically the defense defendant and the claimant were living in the same building, occupying the basement and the first floor respectively. The defendant was in the business of making paper boxes, which he did in the cellar while the claimant stored brown paper in his part of the building. Due to the nature of the defendant's business, it needed a dry and hot environment, which in turn made the defendant's floor too hot. As a consequence, the heat caused damage to the brown paper and they lost their value and the claimant brought in action and nuisance. Essentially, this case gave rise to the principle that where there is abnormal sensitivity, really the inquiry to be made is if there was not that abnormal sensitivity, would there have been any problem, any nuisance as such? And it was held that in this case, because the claimant's paper was abnormally sensitive, and if it was ordinary paper, then the heat wouldn't have caused any problem. Therefore, there was no actionable nuisance. Alright, now we're officially done with the first part. Jump into the second part of the podcast where we'll talk about the different liabilities for different offenders. You have categories such as trespassers, tenants, occupiers. Why don't we just start with a case of Fennel and Robson? So Fennel and Robson, in that case, the plaintiff owned a piece of land. The second defendant was a developer and builder who owned the adjoining piece of land. The second defendant engaged the first defendant who was an independent contractor, Robson Excavations, to excavate. The first defendant had reasonable belief that the first would retain the land as to prevent future subsidence on the plaintiff's land. He became insolvent before this could be done and the plaintiff's land began to subside. The plaintiffs were awarded damages against the excavator. The legal issue is whether liability might be incurred by a party who creates nuisance on land in the occupation of another. So really a party who creates a nuisance can't be liable as a general rule unless he is in occupation of the land where the nuisance was created. And a person who erects a nuisance, whether he's the occupant of the land or a contractor or a servant acting on behalf of the occupier incurs personal responsibility for it and ultimately a person is or may be liable for nuisance he or she creates whether or not they are the occupier of the land on which the nuisance emanates. I think this authority, Fennel and Robson, is chiefly also relates to misfeasance. Can we just give an example of the difference between misfeasance and nonfeasance? So nonfeasance is when you omit to remedy an existing nuisance. Right. So the nuisance arises not by your own sort of cause, but you fail to prevent it from furthering itself. So an example could be if someone lit a fire on your land mm-hmm. and you became aware of that fire and then subsequently failed to stop it. Then that's um, nonfeasance. In that case, it would be non feasance and in order to prove liability you would need to prove fault Mm -hmm. on the party who failed to stop that fire. Uh, As opposed to that, misfeasance is where there is simply just 
wrongful activity. If you start the fire by yourself in the premise, then that's going to be misfeasance, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. The second case that we'll talk about is the case that relates to a lot of golf balls. Do you want to talk about it? 526, yeah. Yeah, it's Um. 526 golf balls. (laughs) This case is Challen and McLeod Country Golf Club. So this family lived next to a golf club and basically golf balls kept coming into their property. So the rule here was that, so like the golf, the people who are playing on this golf course are licensees and you have the person who owns the golf course. So we can think of them as the occupier. So the occupier is usually not liable for the licensee's interference unless the nature of the license amounts to the licensee creating the private nuisance. Here the license is, you know, giving them, um, is allowing them to play golf. And so it expressly or impliedly authorizes them to hit golf balls into this property. Yeah, since we're talking about golf balls, let's just jump to the second case, which involved 421 golf balls. So that's around 105 golf balls, less than the case in... <laughs> in Shallon. What, what was the second case about golf balls? So what do we mean when we say coming to nuisance is no defense? You basically can't say that the person came to the nuisance that you were creating and like, say like you know, it's their fault then. Right, so um, if you have a place which is noisy and then you decide, you know about this issue and then you decide to move next to them, then that's coming to the nuisance, right? And yes. it's no defense? Yeah, in this case, Winton's Land joined the golf club and many golf clubs were coming into the property and people were getting injured as well as people were climbing into their garden to retrieve balls. But anyway, uh, so the principle here was that, again, it is no defense to say the nuisance was in existence before the plaintiffs occupied the land. Mm. Um, so, yeah, coming to the nuisance is no defense. Right. Okay, here we just like talk about Peden and Goldman. So what, what if the person who's making the nuisance, what if he is a trespasser, what's going to happen? So in the case of Peden and Bortolzo, the material facts are basically the plaintiff was an occupier of a motel, the defendant owned the adjacent property, and the plaintiff basically alleged nuisance created from the tenants of one of the defendant's leased flats, the defendant being the lesser. These alleged nuisances comprise noise, smoke, unruly and drunken behaviour, which was prolonged into hours of the night. And the question arising from this case is when a lesser can be liable for nuisance created by a tenant. Peden really sort of establishes that a lesser is not liable for any nuisance created by a tenant unless the lesser expressly authorises that nuisance or the nuisance was certain to result from the purpose for which the land was leased. All right. What about the case of Goatman and Hargrave? Yeah, um, so in this case, we had a defendant who had a tall tree on his property and then lightning struck the tree and it began to burn. He sees the fire, but he doesn't really do anything about it. He gets it cut down and then he kind of lets it just burn for about three days. Eventually, the wind picks up embers and his neighbor's property becomes ablaze. So it's a classic example of non-feasance? Exactly, yeah, just as you guys said. He didn't create like the fire, but he didn't do anything about right, it. Right. So the principle here is that an occupier of land comes under a general duty to his neighbours to take reasonable measures according to their circumstances to remove or reduce natural hazards arising on the land. Alright, let's leave the case of Ellen to Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> Since you work at Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> Where's the can laughter, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll add the sound effects in. <laughs> yeah, so this basically starts our discussion on what defences there can be to private nuisance. The first defence to private nuisance is statutory authority and essentially what that means is if you have a statute which authorizes you to conduct an activity and that activity is alleged to be a nuisance then the statute provides a defense to private nuisance. 
In Allen and Gulf Oil Refinery, the plaintiff lived in Waterson. The defendants operated an oil refinery adjoining the village. The plaintiff brought an action in private nuisance against the defendants for the smell, noise and vibration really caused as a result of that oil refinery. The defendants looked to the Gulf Oil Refinery Act 1965, which authorised the operation of the refinery and provided a defence against inevitable nuisance. The real question here is whether the statute itself provides that authority. What you really need is explicit mandating of statutory authority provides a full defence and in order to know what an explicit or express authorization is, it's a, is a question of statutory interpretation, which the main authority for is Coco and the Queen. But ultimately, in Allen and Gulf Oil Refinery, it was held that the statute did provide a statutory defense to private nuisance. It confers a sort of immunity to what it consist, considers to be the inevitable consequences of building a refinery. Do you guys think we should do the damages part? Because it relates <laughs> to the Supreme Court Act and like the chauffeur rule, so maybe you can like briefly touch upon that? Essentially when it comes to private nuisance remedies, there are three if you consider sort of ordinary damages. One of the remedies is abatement. Abatement isn't really a, a big sort of consideration in the course material because you're really going to have to argue that abatement is the remedy. Abatement itself just means that the person who is to allege nuisance is able to themselves cease the nuisance in some way. So for example, you may say abatement is a remedy if your neighbor's ladder is hanging one centimeter into your land, even though in a case like that, arguably that doesn't actually interfere with your exclusive possession. The other key remedy is an injunction. Injunctions are possible, and it's always good to mention in problem question scenarios that under the Supreme Court Act 1970 in New South Wales, section 68, you can seek an injunction, usually recommended you do so, because if if there is interference to your land that is significant, an injunction will be able to at least attempt to stop that. And the final remedy is, of course, just general damages, which you can claim as of right. Damages obviously increase depending on the level of material loss and material damage that occurs. Ultimately, the injunction itself is a discretionary remedy, and the authority for that is Christie and Davy. But as a general rule, damages is more appropriate, and it's more appropriate in lieu of an injunction in certain situations which have been outlined in Shelfer and City of London electric lighting. In Shelfer, it was held that damages rather than injunction will be given for smaller interferences or where interferences can be monetarily compensated by small amount or where an injunction might oppress the defendant. Injunctions, however, are more suitable for continuing nuisances rather than historical nuisances and they are mutually exclusive with damages under the Supreme Court Act Section 78 and therefore it's important to understand that if you do seek an injunction successfully, that may prevent you from claiming damages in the event that the nuisance becomes history. What I would recommend is whenever you're attempting a problem question and it relates to some of the areas in private nuisance, make sure to think about injunction. I think we're, we're done with the topic. Yep. Anything that we, you, you guys want to say about private nuisance or just about general advice for the listeners? <laughs> um. Um, <so laughs> I think probably the best way to study for talks is Perhaps it's bad and perhaps it's probably not endorsed by the law school, but if you're really running short of time, talks is really one of the rare law subjects where you don't need necessarily to read every case. It is sufficient. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> just talks. It's we just can. endorsed, not reading cases. <laughs> well, no, at, we least can, in, we can do that. at least Sorry. in my personal experience, there is less sort of grey discussion in some of these very historical aspects of tort law than you might say finding contracts. What that means is the best way to study and prepare for the subject is through scaffolds. Right, that's much better. <laughs> yeah.
I'm being censored. Help me. <laughs> Brett Liang is a dictator. <laughs> Brett I'm, Liang not, I'm not censoring. Brett Liang is, you know, is secretly Sun Tzu Chi. No, no. Brett no. Liang is, that's not, is that's oppressing not the Rohingya people. <laughs> Brett that's, Liang is the he's, he's getting personal. He's, he's about to know. All right. Uh, you know what? Secretly speaking, I would. Secretly, <laughs> you're just talking secretly to the whole world. Like, oh my. <laughs> secretly speaking, it all depends on like if you got time. Yes, reading cases in their full judgment is it's really helpful and it practice your ability to become a really articulate and intelligent law student, which we're not. But if you're running short of time, look, listening to the podcast or reading some brief on the internet, it doesn't do any damage to you as long as you make sure that you understand what's going on in every case and you go to tutorial and you participate. Yeah, I, I like I bet the tutors and the lecturers won't see it as a problem. I think that like with torts, like compared to I don't know, compared to contracts at least, the cases are a lot easier. The more memorable at least. So yeah, that's why we're they're doing definitely that. <laughs> definitely easier to remember. And try and um, incorporate the facts of your cases into your answers rather than kind of just stating the principles to show yeah, that you're really engaging really with the I case. I got a lot of marks off by not doing that. Uh, I probably did as well. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> We're good? <laughs> Alan, come on. Give, uh, give us a hearty goodbye. 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 See ya. Coming at you with another stage, I told you. And we're cooked live from the Moscow border.